welcome to the Let It Matter podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wolf. Here at Let It Matter, we seek to make space for and honor what matters to us as individuals, as communities, and as beloved children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 to cast our cares on God because God cares for us. That tells me that God cares about what we care about. In their song of the same title, the group Johnny Swim offers this invitation. If it matters, let it matter. So that's what we're going to do. I invite you to join me for the next 30 to 45 minutes as we make space for honor, celebrate, or lament, and as we name what matters. Hello, 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 and welcome. I am so thankful you are joining me for this episode Today on the Let It Matter podcast, I am joined by Karen Gonzalez, author of Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration, to discuss just exactly that. Before we dive in, would you please press pause right quick and make sure to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, if you would just take 30 seconds and go leave us a rating and review, it really helps a ton with the algorithms and things, um, things too lofty for me to, to understand, but it really does help, especially for a fledgling show like this one. I'll be your best friend and love you forever. Um, now, let me introduce Karen and we will get to our conversation. Karen Gonzalez is a writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate who immigrated from Guatemala as a child. She attended Fuller Theological Seminary, where she studied theology and missiology, and has worked in the nonprofit sector for 13 years. In addition to her first book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong, she has written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Baltimore Sun. Her second book, Beyond Welcome, was released in October of 2022, and she lives in Baltimore, Maryland. Now let's get into the show. Okay, Karen Gonzalez, first of all, I am so honored and thankful that you would um, spend time with me on the show today and to talk about this this conversation that is really important to me and I, I think it matters, which is um, why we're talking about it on this show. We, we want to make space for what matters. So, uh, so just welcome. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I, I want to, I'm going to just tell listeners here, you have written a masterful book called Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in the, I don't have it in front of me, in the Christian Response to Immigration. Um, and it is so, well, it's, I mean, beautifully written, and but it's so full of information and context and history and memoir and, um, and action, actionable um, items. And so, because we have a limited amount of time, I want to, I'm just saying that at the top because guys get this book. There is way more in it than we could possibly cover in this episode and it, and you need to know all of it. So <laughs> it's, um, it's fantastic. And so in the interest of time, basically where I want to kind of streamline our attention is some practical ways in which the sort of dominant church culture here in America can intentionally decenter ourselves and intentionally center immigrants in their full humanity and dignity um, when we think about or react to or engage with the topic or them as people. 
Um, and so one of the first things I notice in your book is the importance and emphasis you place on words and terminology mm-hmm. and phrasing. Um, so for example, you start out by defining the difference between migrant and immigrant and asylum seeker and refugee. Um, later on, you, you spend some time talking about the, you know, the dangerous nature of dehumanizing words like illegals or like using uh, phrases like um, infestation or swarms um, and absolutely. But one thing I loved was you also got more, more nuanced than that. And you talk even about the well-intended phrases like welcome the stranger and um, we welcome, we welcome refugees Specifically, you note that these phrases still center the dominant culture and they sort of other the people that are being um, referred to. And so I, I would like you to, if you can, talk for a little bit about what are some practical ways the dominant church culture can center immigrants in the words, language, phrases, and descriptors uh, that we use. Thank you. That's a great question. And and I want to clarify that all of us are still, including me, are still learning and growing. I don't feel like I've arrived at some place where I'm just imparting wisdom to other people. I learn and unlearn all the time. What are the uh, words that are best suited? What are the words that are humanizing, that center the person uh, and not something else you know, outside of them? And so... I'm still learning this and I'm, you know, happy to do it. For example, you know, I recently learned that you're not supposed to just say, oh, you're blind to this or, or that unless when you, when you're not talking about physical blindness, Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about just someone who misses a point uh, or failed to take an important point into consideration. I'm still learning that too. And somebody who is disabled Mm -hmm. and who had a uh, severe visual impairment pointed it out to me and I had to apologize and commit to doing better in the future. And that's what I'm asking people to do essentially in the book, because what we do now is, and I want to clarify that it's not just with immigrants, but of course that's my focus is we talk about things like, uh, you know, the immigrants, uh, the homeless, Uh (laughs) and it's kind of like these nameless, faceless, um, But we're talking actually about human beings who live in our communities. So really we're talking about our neighbors. Yes. Yes. Right. And so when we use words, like I am, for example, I am an immigrant. I've also lived in the United States since I was nine years old and I'm no longer really an outsider to this culture. I was initially when I arrived, but uh, quickly I've, integrated and adapted and I can navigate the culture really well and yet I'm still treated like an other Uh, when for example people talk about immigrant ministry or um, you know when they talk about things like we you know we welcome refugees we welcome the stranger Um, even though I'm a part of the community I'm being held out as separate yeah like a subsect sort of Yeah. Mm -hmm. A subsect. Yeah. And so what I want to encourage people to do is to consider the impact that these words have, not the intention. The intention I understand is always good, but the impact isn't. The impact can be harmful. 
And so in this case, um, you know, an example of the way that this has been. Um, so I don't know if you know, there, there was there's a representative from Minnesota, Ilan Omar, who came with her family from Somalia as refugees. And, um, you know, she's lived in this country her whole life, basically, mm-hmm. since she was a, a very little girl. But um, there was language used, especially during the Trump administration, for her to go back mm-hmm. to her country as if she's not an American citizen, as if she's not someone who has made her home here. Not only has she made her home here, but she's given her gifts. Right. She's met her responsibilities here um, in in the U.S. And this has nothing to do with her politics. It has everything to do with being a human right. being who is worthy of being respected right. and, and, and honored as a human being. And I think being. there's some something goes to that of the presumption. Same with what, when you say you're, you know, you've been here since you were, did you say nine? Um, and, and are still considered an other, there's a presumption that we know someone's story or history because of the way that they look or the way they talk or how thick their accent is. Um, and, and we, you know, saying, go back to your, to your country, they, you know, maybe because she's a public figure, but if it was someone else who was maybe an immigrant from Somalia, uh, you don't know if they're the first generation born in America. You don't know if they came yesterday or if they have been there, been here their whole lives, maybe longer than your family. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I, all of us have immigrant stories in our, you know, in our history. And so, unless we're native. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of a, even, even in the less insidious ways, but just sort of in the way that we engage with people and, and think about, like you just said, immigrant, immigrant ministry, um, as mm-hmm. if, um, as if it, it's like what it's sort of white savior ministry. Let me, let's go in and save them from them, their culture and from their confusion at being here when they may have been here, you know, <laughs> for as long as we have been on this earth. Um, and so I, I just appreciated you, you sort of making a note of that. I'll let you continue, but that was an interesting Mm-hmm. Interesting point. No, no, and I was almost done. It's really, we need to start thinking of people as neighbors. I get asked all the time uh, where I'm from. And if you think about it, it's not a very interesting question because not only does it make me feel like you don't think I belong here, right. <laughs> you don't think I'm from here, but what is it really going to tell you in terms of my, you know, life? And a friend of mine who is, you know, she is an immigrant from Africa, from Uganda, from East Africa. She actually told me that she thinks a much more interesting question is, where is home for you? Mm. So I think even in asking a question like, where are you from? You are asking people, you you are telling them that you consider them the other (laughs) and you want to know where they come from because of that. And so, um, so even something that's that, seemingly meaningless, right, can be, and when we receive that question so many times a week, <laughs> it can, it can be a little bit unnerving to, to be still be perceived like you don't belong here. And so what I want to encourage people to really center is our shared humanity. So rather than thinking of, oh, our ministry to the homeless, how about our ministry to our neighbors who are unhoused? How about our work with people who have recently migrated? Yes. 
um, to this country. Um, the the descriptor they're neighbors. They, it's mm-hmm. that the, their their noun is that they're a human, not that they're a label. Right. I noticed. Um, I watch a lot of those like genealogy shows, and I noticed that Henry Louis mm-hmm. Gates Jr. on Finding Your Roots, he will often say people who were enslaved, and he doesn't say slaves, mm-hmm. um, because right. because that can still even it can it adds like a layer of removal from their humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I was, right. that was something I sort of got from your book. I think, in fact, you mentioned that term in your book. Um, and just the, any sort of sanitation from their human or distance from the actual humanity of the person, um, by applying a label, particularly if it doesn't apply to us as well, <laughs> um, creates a, a distance and, an, and a little bit of an othering. That's sort of something I took mm-hmm. from what you were That's saying. That's exactly okay. It's exactly what I'm getting at. And we, we need to remember that there are neighbors, yeah. that they uh, live in our communities <laughs> and maybe next door, maybe a few streets down. And so there are neighbors. So I think that's a better way to think about the people in our communities. You know, there are um, in my neighborhood, I live in Baltimore, there are uh, people who are unhoused and I see the same people mm. Uh unhoused on the streets around my neighborhood. So they're my neighbors. They live in this community. They're around here in this community. They are unhoused, but they belong to our community. So they really are my neighbors. And it's the same thing with immigrants. They are your neighbors. And so it's appropriate to uh, to address them that way. And particularly within the church, Jesus has given us a framework for what then how do we interact with our neighbors? Oh, you Mm -hmm. love the Lord your God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and then he goes a little further, if you want to know what it looks like, and then he tells, you know, the story of the Samaritan. And, um, and I just love how he gave no wiggle room there. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor and there is no, like, it's an indictment on you when you ask the question, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, he told a whole parable just about who is your neighbor, yeah. exactly. And so that's what I wanted us to begin. That's what, what was my challenge to people instead of thinking, because what happens when we think about someone as, oh, the homeless, uh, the immigrants, we start to think of them as having less in every way. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, uh, know another writer who used to be unhoused and who was, you know, he lived in a community and in his car and he went through a, you know, a time when he was a young man that he really struggled. Mm -hmm. He's just finishing his PhD right now and finishing up a third book. Mm -hmm. And clearly he's someone who was resourceful and capable and intelligent but all people saw was homelessness and he has less in every way. His whole identity was being homeless. The same thing with being an immigrant. People don't think about the fact that you have faith, you have gifts, you have talents, you have education, you have all of these things. You're not just someone who is new to the country. And so when we just refer to people in those terms, we all of a sudden forget that they're not just people with needs, that they have many other aspects of their identities that are important. And so 
it really is a form of dehumanizing people by referring to them by this whole term a term which has connotations of being less. Yeah, that's helpful. One of the one of the most beautiful lessons I sort of learned about um, the way to think about neighbors um, was from uh, a, a man that I met. Um, I was asking him. This was right after. I don't know if you know. In Texas, in February or January, February of 2021, we had this like apocalyptic freeze uh, where people were literally dying of the cold in their homes yes. and power was out and everything was, there was water everywhere. It was horrific. And just after that, I, you know, I had gone and I was, I was talking with him and I said, you know, did you get, you know, did you get through it? Okay. And we were talking about how people had been, had died in their homes of the cold. And he said, that doesn't, that doesn't compute to me in Vietnam. We would never just be in our house and not know how our neighbors were doing, not know that they had fire and food and a way to be warm. And if they didn't, that they wouldn't be in our house. Um, that, and he's like, he, he sort of described like this row of homes and he was like, everyone, mm-hmm. everyone in our proximity, basically, there there would have been no category for them to hope everyone made it out all right and just left it at that, you know, that they would have checked on them, that yeah. they would have said, do you have fire? Do you have food? What can I give you of mine? Hey, we're out of this. Can I have from you? Why don't you guys come down here if we're all bored? <laughs> like, um, and, and that I, that has always stuck with me because- um, I live in an apartment complex that has 74 buildings, just my complex. I don't know. I know one family in my building. <laughs> That's it. Um, and it's, and it's, so it's like, um, it's just so different than the way this sort of rugged individualism of American culture is that we, everyone just sort of take care of your own, mind your business. Um, and then you can give to charity but one of the other things I loved that you were saying in your book is like people are allowed to, ha- you know, immigrants and, and um, people who experience um, homelessness, they have preferences also. They have things that they like. They don't mm-hmm. need decisions made for them. Um, and and like, um, like, for example, with homeless people, if you give them food instead of money because you're in, you know what they like, you know what's the better way to do it. Yes. Um, and that's that sort of paternalism of um because i just like you said the language because i see you now as less than in every way or having less in every way um whatever i give you should be a blessing right right i get to decide you know how you should spend mm-hmm. your money and i don't trust you with money so i'm just going to give you food you know yeah you know in the past i i remember there was a time in my life where i even used to go to McDonald's and buy their like gift cards because I wanted to give them to people experiencing homelessness because I didn't trust them to not buy alcohol or drugs or what have you. And now that I think back on that, I cringe. And I'm sharing that because, listen, it's okay. We're all human beings doing the best we can. And I did something that was wrong. And I'm sorry for it. And now I don't do that. If I have cash, people are, you know, asking on the street and I'm able to give it, I give it. And I don't think I have the right to decide, you know, how they spend it or what they do with it. And so, and it's just how we deal with other humans that we consider to be equal Mm -hmm. in dignity and 
humanity to us, right? And one of the things you, so, you said early on was that you've been learning and unlearning. And I think that piece um, is is really important. I'll, just being frank, right before I hit record with you, I was going over terminology that I had read in your book that because I'm not, um, I don't speak Spanish well. I mean, I live in Texas and so it's sort of everywhere and you pick it up conversationally to some degree, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I don't, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was using the terminology that would be the most dignifying and honoring um, and that, and that my inherent ignorance from being in a dominant culture, well, it's actually half and half now, but from being um, white in Texas yeah. and, um, and you know, from what I've heard growing up that I wasn't going to misspeak or say, or use a, a terminology that is not, um, not the best one anymore. And so, um, mm-hmm. and so I wish we had actually done that on a recording because it, it sort of, it, it is actually what happened. It was that I had to make sure, Hey, it's okay to just have that conversation. I want to use the right term. Can you just help me? What's the best one that honors you specifically? And everyone is not a monolith. So every, um, Latinx person does not feel the same way about Mm -hmm. what, you know, how they identify or what terminology is used. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate you pointing out that unlearning and learning is sort of a lifelong process. And I think progressives particularly, mm-hmm. we get this sort of like paralysis if we don't, like we'll either research and know it all and then we can talk about it or we just sort of get paralysis about what if I say the wrong thing I don't want to offend. And it comes from, like you said, right. that good intent of I want to be inclusive with my language. And then the impact is sometimes the paralysis can keep us out of the conversation from fear, right? That's exactly right. I think we need to recognize that part of being <clears throat> being in a space where we want to do justice as we walk with God is that we're going to make mistakes. Yes. yes. Just like your yeah. shirt, do justice. <laughs> um, we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. You make a mistake and you don't let it defeat you and you don't let it be the reason you take yourself out of the game. You apologize and then you get up and then you move forward because all of us are learning that way. And, you know, I know that there people can say sometimes that, oh, this happened to me and I wasn't offered any grace when I made a mistake. It's happened to me too. It doesn't mean though that we don't move forward. Yes, some people are going to react badly. Some people are going to be gracious, but we just, we have our own responsibility to keep moving forward. And I have, I can think of many times that I've made mistakes and that's okay. You the know, stakes it's okay are too high to, to apologize. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I think where we get into issues is when we don't want to apologize. We just want people to understand our intent mm-hmm. or we decide it's too, it's too much of a risk. I can't make a mistake. Which, which is and censoring so I'm ourselves. Just not say right? anything. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. sort of very, it's at least a manifestation of centering ourselves in the work of justice, which is to make sure we are always getting it right or coming off right, or we don't get canceled (laughs) Um, rather than let's risk, you know, let's risk if we accidentally make a mistake and then make it right. But there's work to do here. It's too important to sit out. Mm -hmm. Um, Moving on. There's, um, there's a chapter in your book where you describe something that I 
I mean, I, I was drawn to it like a moth to the flame. I just love the sort of rebellious and subversive nature of it. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to actually have you pronounce it if you could. Sure. It's ética para joder. Um, the way that you, you sort of describe it is, is, is messing things up, messing up, messing with the system. But there's a... Um, Ethics of messing with the yeah. system. But in the book, you say, basically, screw it. <laughs> And I love that. Um, so th- basically, this is immigrants and citizens together. Um, screw screw with the system to subvert it rather than waiting for laws to change. Um, and mm-hmm. so you say white Christians are right to be concerned about land and... Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, a right to be concerned about land and borders. Um but their concern should be about whether preventing movement across borders to access resources is biblical. Our concern should be about whether borders are just, whether it is a good use of our time to advocate for secure borders rather than for their erasure. Uh, and one thing I was I, that made me think about is um, someone posted not too long ago is that that borders imply the violence of their maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. That, and we've they seen absolutely it, do. Um, uh, certainly in Texas, we see all kinds of cruelty and violence happening um, to maintain that border. And so give us some examples of what um, of what this can look like, of what screwing with the system in partnership between citizens and immigrants um, might look like. Sure. So I'll share with you one of my favorite examples, which is out of the UK. And in the UK, they have deportation flights to the Caribbean and also to different parts of Africa. And what citizens have been doing is they will also get tickets to be on the flight because it's not like the the U.S. specifically has just deportation Mm -hmm. flights. So nobody else is on the flight except people being deported. That's not the way it happens in the U.K. So they will buy tickets to be on these flights and then they will stand up. They will break the rules so that the flight cannot take Mm. off. And they do this communally, not just one person, right? But communally so that their neighbors can't be deported. And they have succeeded in flights not taking off. And they have to deplane everyone because the flight can't take off. And so in I've seen this happen also in the U.S. where a community in North Carolina surrounded uh, uh, ICE, you know, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement Mm -hmm. truck and refused to let them drive away with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. They just surrounded a truck, the community, and they refused to let it go. And so they didn't, you know, it ended up turning into a different kind of situation. You see this also with churches who turn their... um, their church building into a sanctuary building so that immigrant people can live there. There was one in DC like that where two people were living Mm -hmm. there for years. I mean, a couple of years uh, because it's a safe space, right? Where uh, ice can't come in. And so, you know, messing with the system is something that poor people have always Mm -hmm. done because, and this is what, it's what Martin Luther King did. It's a civil disobedience. Say, it sounds like Underground Railroad, partnering between both. Yes. It sounds like civil disobedience. Um, there, mm-hmm. Even now there's like climate change marches where people are getting arrested because it also yes. draws the attention to the issue and highlights the absurdity mm-hmm. of the existing law, 
which is something I love. Exactly. Okay, go on. Sorry. Which is what Martin Luther King did when he organized boycotts of buses, right? Sit-ins at uh, lunch counters. That was all um, messing with the system. Basically, all of us choose to subvert the system together so that it will change. And you do this with unjust law. So it's not anarchy. You're not <laughs> right. just doing it to get away with something. You're doing it to, to subvert something unjust and to create creative and new opportunities for justice. So, you know, the theologian who writes about this, his name is uh, Miguel de la Torre. He's a Cuban-American theologian. And he says that there is a kind of hope that can be oppressive. When you are hoping and waiting and hoping and waiting and nothing ever changes, that is a harmful kind of hope, an oppressive kind of hope. And so what messing with the system does is instead of waiting, you're put into action. So in in Arizona, I don't know if you've heard, but there are, it's illegal to leave water in the desert for migrants. I have heard that. But there are Americans who choose to do it anyway. They'll take all these gallons of water and drop them in the desert anyway. And one of them was actually being tried I, I was in court. Say, I didn't know that was Arizona. I thought it was Texas. But yes, I knew somebody had, had been arrested and um, and was facing criminal charges for for essentially aid, yeah. like aiding and abetting, basically, but giving water to people who need water. Right. And to me, I mean, that those people who are doing that and those people who are being prosecuted for this they're answering a higher law um, of taking care of their neighbor, of loving their neighbor and not allowing their neighbor to die of thirst in the desert, which by the way is an extremely agonizing and slow death. And so the idea that them protecting their neighbors is cause for prosecution really is an indictment on unjust laws exactly, yeah, uh, that are in effect that say that you're not allowed to care for your neighbor. And so um, this is messing with the system. Yeah. People who say, you know what, I'm sorry, but that's not okay. And I'm not going to do it. So people who are on the margins and who are poor have always done this. They have always found a way to mess with the system, perhaps not on a large scale. And that's really what is so amazing about the civil rights movement in the U S was that it was this organized, mm-hmm. um, movement that brought about change, but on a smaller scale, people have always done this. They subvert um, laws that are unjust. I'm thinking about teachers in states that are passing legislation that say you have to out kids who come out to you and teachers refusing to do that. I'm thinking about doctors who like, who will still give an abortion pill to women in states with with total abortion bans. Like there are, Mm -hmm. um, it meets a need, but then also, um, I lo- I just love the the partnership aspect of it that it is both the oppressed yes. and the quote oppressor or the the one with the resources and the one without both partnering together and saying neither mm. of us will tolerate this um, right. even if it doesn't affect me personally in my daily life it affects me because it affects my neighbor if you could if I could sort of if you have any recommendations of sort of like bite-sized or digestible actions that people can do that are effective and that center immigrants or asylum seekers and 
their needs and experience that like the reason I'm saying bite size is not because massive action isn't needed, but just because it, the smaller ones can pull us out of paralysis and we go, okay, we mm-hmm. cool, we're doing that one. Now we can do something else and, and we get momentum. Do you have any recommendations? Yes. Yes, I do. And I want to say that changing your words is an action that makes a difference. And I want you to know that it does make a difference. And, you know, when there was a, I live in Baltimore, there was the police, um, there was a young man who died in their custody and there were protests all over the city. There were people who called it the uprising and there were people who called it a riot. Right. And depending on what word they used, people in the community knew who was trustworthy, who was on their side. And so that's the difference that words can make. And so if you begin using words in a way that is different, thinking it changes the way that you think. Mm -hmm. So now you don't think of people as other, you think of them as your neighbors, as as human beings, just like Mm -hmm. you, that matters. Yeah. Another really important thing, and I think a partnership thing, is you can call your representatives in Congress, your senators, your representatives. I know this doesn't seem like it would change anything, but Mm -hmm. it does. Because guess who calls Congress the most? People who are anti-immigration. One thing that you can do is call them. You don't have to say anything fancy at all. A person will answer you, first of all, or direct you to the person who represents you. And then you just say, hi, I'm Karen. This is my address. I live in Baltimore. So-and-so is my representative. I wanted her Mm -hmm. or whatever. I wanted them to know that I want our country to continue to be welcoming to immigrants, especially immigrants who are seeking asylum or who are refugees. Mm -hmm. This is a long tradition in our country and I support it. And I want to know what does Senator X think about Mm -hmm. this, you know? And they will tell you, a person answers the phone and they Mm -hmm. will tell you. And then you can say, I'd like Senator X or Representative X to communicate with me. And they will email you um, and they will send you a response. They need to hear from those of us who care about immigrants because they do hear from people who are just rabidly anti-immigrant and it makes a difference. Yeah. I appreciate you, so that's an important you saying thing. that because, um, <clears throat> because that, that feels like a small thing that gets to the big thing. You know what I mean? Because the, the laws mm-hmm. have to change. The policies have to change. President Biden just gave a speech a week or two ago telling asylum seekers to stay where they are and reinforcing Trump era policies. Um, And as I don't have a problem saying this, as someone who, you know, voted for President Biden, I I had hoped for different. (laughs) Um, And so I, so I think that's a great idea. Get on the phone and say, Hey, you know, um, this is, this is important to me and you work for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I'd like to know, you know, what are you doing and what are your positions on this? And if your positions, you know, if I don't agree with your positions, then I will let you know at the voting booth. Exactly. Exactly. They do work for you. So it is, you have a right to ask them what they think about things. And I would think that's another thing that you can do. There's an assumption that 
Democrats are really great on immigration and that Republicans are not. And I just want you to know that both parties have done a lot of harm to immigrants in the U.S. Neither of them has the corner of the market on justice or on duty of care for human beings who are on the margins. And so, in fact, I would say the Republicans have done slightly less harm than Democrats, believe it or not. Believe it or not, more people were deported under President Obama than under President Trump. Now, the rhetoric under President Trump was very ugly, and that's not okay because words matter. Was but in terms of deportations, it was worse was it Bush under era policies President Obama that were being enforced. And actually, Bush wasn't that bad on immigration either, really? compared to other presidents. One of the worst presidents for immigration is actually Bill Clinton. Wow. Yeah, he's instituted some things that are really harmful. Okay, so I think that's another important thing is not to assume that, oh, I'm going to vote for you know Joe Biden and it's going to be better. Um, not to say that you shouldn't believe people's platforms and positions, but like you said, look at how quickly things mm-hmm. change from what Biden said when he was running to what is actually happening now. And to hold so, them accountable if... You know, if mm-hmm. I do believe he was the better option in the, between those yes. two. Um, and but but um, it doesn't mean that he's got my blank check. And so. Right. Exactly. There's another election hold coming and, and hold him accountable and let my representatives hear. I think that's that's really great. Um, yeah. And I think finally, I mean, one thing that you can do is you need to know your neighbors. There are immigrant people in your community because we are. 11% of the population. So <laughs> we're around or 13% yeah. now. So we are in your community. So it's important that you know people in your community uh, who are immigrants because relationships are how people tend to start understanding issues and their impact. Yes. And so um, building relationships across different lines is important. And so getting to know your neighbors who are immigrants really is important. And like we said, every, you know, immigrants are not a monolith. And so these are, I think, great action items, but then the proximity to the specific people in my community will give me my next action items. What do they actually need? Mm -hmm. What do, what does this person need that's in front of me or their family or their neighborhood? Um, I like that. And they can tell you exactly. Yeah. And you know, there's a, a church here in my community you won't hear about this on the news, but it, to me, it's very heartening. <laughs> There's a church in my community that used to be, it used to be a white working class neighborhood. Now it's an all immigrant neighborhood, but there's still a church in the community that was, you know, a white church. And now it's surrounded by immigrants. And when the pandemic started, this church wanted to do something like a food pantry or something like that for the immigrants in their neighborhood. But rather than doing that, they decided to ask people in the community. Wow. We have some resources and we'd love to help you. Where where do you need help or support? And what they found out is they didn't need a food pantry. However, they said, would you be able to support us by allowing our children to use your Wi-Fi so they can do their schooling? Oh my goodness. That's great. And so, and they did that. They, they, they very much did that because all the parents for, for the most part, essential workers, they were still leaving the home to work and their children were kind of unsupervised Mm -hmm. to do their schoolwork. 
And the church filled in that gap in the community and supported those families in the way that those families asked. This was an incredibly good and helpful thing. These are the things going on in our communities that we don't hear about because they don't make the news, but they're wonderful like partnerships, right? Between neighbors. And I think you can tap into that. What is happening in your community so that you can support people. I love that. Okay. That was my conversation with Karen Gonzalez. I am so thankful for her wisdom and her willingness to share it with us here on the podcast and for all the wisdom she shares in her book as well. I have been so blessed to be able to do book giveaways and resources from most of my guests. And I'm thrilled to say Karen has partnered with the podcast to give away a copy of her book beyond welcome. And it is a phenomenal read. So make sure to check out Instagram for details on that giveaway. You don't want to miss it. So let's hear, let's do what we always do and talk about why this matters. Even the most cursory basic reading of the Old Testament, particularly, but really the whole Bible, reveal to us that this issue is close to God's heart and these people are held in God's heart. Throughout scripture, but like I said, predominantly the Old Testament and the Gospels, we see God's heart for the foreigner and the sojourner and the stranger on display. And by stranger here, I mean people who are away from their home country and land and people, essentially immigrants. In the Law of Moses, over and over, God makes provision and sets up protection for immigrants in everything from forbidding oppression to the way the Israelites harvest their crops to the way they practice Sabbath. Here's three quick examples. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 say, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Exodus 23 verse 12 says, Six days do your work, but on the seventh do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. God is putting God's own name, God's own stamp on each of these commands. And these are just three examples. You literally cannot turn your head in the Old Testament without finding God's heart for the immigrants on display. A prophetic word raising up and blessing strangers and foreigners or a pronouncement of God's judgment against a people group who oppress foreigners and immigrants among them. This topic matters because there is so much nonsense being spewed in certain circles within American Christianity and particularly evangelicalism that says social justice is a false gospel or that Christians, as Christians, our focus should be just on proclaiming the gospel, not on social justice or meeting felt needs. Maybe it's just me, but I believe aligning our hearts and intentions and actions with the heart and intentions of God is good and worthy work. My thanks again to Karen for joining me today. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez with two Z's. 
G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z, I mean, or on her website at karen-gonzalez.com. She also has a Substack, and I'm going to link to all of these in the show notes as well. I also want to mention that the main switchboard phone number to call and be connected with your congressional representatives and senators will also be in the show notes just to eliminate that step for you. And I hope you'll take that next step, like Karen said, and contact them. Join me next week as we continue to make space for honor and name what matters. And now, according to our little tradition as we close out, I offer you this benediction. Since we spent a little time in the books of the Torah a minute ago, this comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face turn toward you and shine on you. And may God be gracious to you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.